What exactly is it that they do? Kick names, take ass. Yeah, well, I guess you're about ready then, aren't you? Well, your friends, they're not like the others, man. Really? No more of that talking about with the fucking leashes on you, understand? Sick your five dollar ass down before I make changes. Ernest Hemingway once wrote, the world is a fine place and worth fighting for. I agree with the second part. Hello, and welcome to Kropotkin's Barbershop, a current affairs roundtable discussion podcast presented from a decidedly left-wing perspective. I'm your host, Nina Illingworth. Joining me is my co-host, Charles Minnick, KBS producer, Adam Scriven, and creative director, Chris Walker. All right, my man, take it away. Thanks, Nina. I know you've uh, talked about fascism as an all-out assault on all levels of democracy. Uh, in other words, this isn't just about voting, uh, the, the topic we're going to talk about today. There are three current events that come to mind that I think can help us drill down into the nature of this fascist assault that appear separate and unrelated and democratic, but I think they're strongly related to each other and very anti-democratic. All right, Walker, I'll be your Rube. What three events are we talking about, my man? Thank you. Well, I'd like us to talk about the school board battles in the United States over things like critical race theory. And then I'd like to talk about this bow trucker convoy in Canada and and I wrap it up with something very recent that happened in Texas, where the governor, Greg Abbott, signed a bill to essentially snitch on parents with trans children in the form of reporting child abuse or even anyone that appears trans to fascist uh charles can you give us some context what are the long-term goals of these kinds of attacks well chris the long-term goals of all of these efforts are to disrupt popular and active involvement in civil society or any pretense of democracy because these are fundamental to moving to a more overt form of fascism like if you can't show up to your city school board meeting, if you can't redress your public officials, if you can't say what you want to in popular media or, you know, on the side of a building, if it comes to that, if you can't do that, that is civil society. That is like an inter a person interacting with like not just civil society, but just society in general. But yeah, it's again, if you keep people from being able to interact with each other and share ideas then you can stymie every popular dissent or any form of popular dissent, which, you know, is a goal of fascism. Yeah, and they, they always try to frame it as a culture war, right? They always want to say, oh, they're going against our culture and they're going against our traditions and they're going. And I guess in a way that's kind of true, except what they don't say is the quiet part, which is that their traditions break down to, you know, fascism. You know, they want to divide and conquer and and create anger and sow dissent and basically just be little chaos demons going everywhere because that muddies up the waters and it makes it so hard for the normal people to actually figure out what is honestly going on and what is the truth that a lot of them are just going to give up. They're just going to say, you know what, I don't understand any of this. They're all assholes. I'm just going to go shopping now. My understanding is it's not just about uh talking to your public official but a sense of community right well i mean there's two things that 
definitely need to be factored in here, okay? The first is that we we're when you have an assault on what you can teach, uh, what reality, like what history, what real things that happen, you're allowed to teach. When you have an assault on how someone is able to raise their children, when you have an, an assault on, you know, a, an attempt, like your community living, your, your peace, your ability to have security, all of those attacks on civil rights are also direct attacks that erode local democracy. They erode your ability to not only participate in the decision-making process in a democratic society, but they also erode your ability to live in peace. If you happen to be a trans person or uh, a parent of a trans person, this is a direct attack on your existence. And I think it needs to be understood that while the media is going to portray these faux culture war issues as a type of populism, you can absolutely tell that that's not the case because all of these things are about applying coercion, legal coercion, the coercion of force. And as we're going to discuss later on in the show, you will find that the police are more than happy to enforce these laws against the political enemies of the right, of the volkish white supremacist culture that is backing movements like Trumpism in the United States, but they are not ever going to enforce the law against reactionaries, against Nazis, against, you know, violent white supremacists in get, conducting uh, attempts to, as we're going to see later, literally overthrow an election. So when you look at that situation, it should be pretty obvious to you that this is not class war being conducted on behalf of the little guy, because if this was on behalf of the little guy, the cops would be beating you and all of these billionaire fascists wouldn't be throwing money into causes like preventing people from raising trans children, preventing people from teaching that U.S. history features long episodes of institutional white supremacy that haven't left us to this day, or attempting to convince people that a bunch of petit bourgeoisie reactionary business owners attempting to overthrow a democratically elected government to remove protections for marginalized and vulnerable service workers in the middle of a global plague is not class war being conducted on behalf of the left. Certainly not. I mean, and there's only one reason why those billionaires would spend what even is to them a measly amount of money in pursuit of this. It's like pursuit of an accumulation of further capital, land, money, machines, and labor. Like if in the, the pandemic continues, labor might get cheaper and then they ultimately win or you know, there, yeah, there's ultimately any number of ways that they could will benefit from this. It's if it isn't legally, it's just commerce by other means, which is also a fascist mo. Let me ask, what what does breaking down a sense of community and civil society have to do with with money and the accumulation of capital? Well, it is absolutely necessary if you're going to pretend that you live in a free society, right? And this is uh, something that even applies to like the Nazi state in, in uh, uh, at the beginning of World War II. There's an excellent book written about the transformation of German society under fascism with the title, They Thought They Were Free. So if you're going to maintain the illusion of a free society, 
while you're viciously extracting capital from some of the people, you have to justify that. And this is not a, a fringe opinion. Scholars from uh, Leon Trotsky up to like modern day thinkers like Ibram X. Kendi have noted that the um, the money and the power and the ability to broadcast racist, fascist, white supremacist ideas always come from those that have those advantages and they always have a capitalist purpose. Once you convince most of the people that a certain class of people aren't worthy or aren't human, you can justify the most, most ruthless exploitation of them possible. And you see that today in examples like migrant labor or prison labor. These things amount to forms of slavery, but that's tolerated because those people have been put outside the circle of people who have rights. And I think it's fair to say that all of these legal pushes are the beginning of an attempt to put a number of people who oppose fascist ideology outside the circle of rights, whether that's for exploitation, whether that's so they can be criminalized and silenced, it doesn't really matter. At the end of the day, this is being done by rich people for rich people to ensure a steady supply of people they can brutalize for money. I mean, <laughs> I'm not kidding. Have you, have you guys taken a look at, at police budgets uh, around the United States? People may think yeah. of that as public spending, but the reality is that all, all that training, all that gear, all that equipment, someone in the private sector is making a metric fuck ton of money off what you are being told is a purely social issue. It's not. There's a reason we talk about the prison industrial complex. And in order to make things like that work, you need isms, you need racisms, you need white supremacy, you need uh, gender-based discrimination. Any of, without those excuses, the facade that a fascist society, which again is literally just a hyper-capitalist society that's kind of gone over the edge, is free. Mm. It doesn't exist without that justification. And if I, I think, may go so far to say this is about undermining all the stuff we teach our kids and don't follow ourselves as adults, like basic sharing, being considerate, consent. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. I mean, and they, they have to divide the labor class to exploit it because if everybody was united and could like just stand on the street corner and yell how much they were getting paid, billionaires would have a very different opinion about, uh, you know, the value of labor or be forced to reconsider it. Oh, I agree. So let's just kind of start to get into this. I think we should start from, say, the least extreme example of this phenomenon and move our way to the most extreme examples of the fascist assault on democracy, uh, which is happening all across the pig empire. But our focus here is going to be America, because in many ways it is most blatant here. Walker, since you mentioned kids, why don't you talk about what's going on in school boards across the United States? Yeah, absolutely. Look at how many school boards across America have been ambushed over mask mandates and teaching about slavery, transphobia. The most recent battles within the school system involve banning the books that teach about these issues. Like what's big in the news lately is the graphic novel Mouse. This was banned in Tennessee, supposedly on grounds of 
profanity or decency. If you look closely at the supposedly <laughs> grassroots groups that are in these school boards, you're going to find connections to the Koch brothers, the Cato Institute, veterans of the Republican Party. They, these groups have names like Moms for Liberty, Parents Defending Education. They try to put on a popular facade, and it's not. It's completely astroturfed. Uh, the people that make up these groups typically carry Christian nationalist talking points, and they are organized and persistent. Uh, speaking from experience, I think you might be surprised how well local churches can mobilize a political response. Now, it doesn't matter that there was this Streisand effect. You got this backlash where you're going to see these books sell a bunch more all of a sudden. It does not matter. School boards are perhaps the most local and immediate form of democracy that people are familiar with. And throwing your weight around in ways that aren't very democratic at all is purely meant to quash this backlash with fear. Charles, I know you've got to have some examples Wisconsin that oh, come to mind. I know you know how all this politics developed in there. Well, I mean, if you want to talk about a white nationalist who uses the labor class as a cudgel against itself and batters ed education across the whole state as a result, we can take it back to 2011 and Scott Walker. The uh, If everybody remembers when Back then, Wisconsin was having a bit of a kerfuffle. Some news media came and covered it for the first few days. There were tens, if not hundreds of thousands of Wisconsinites who walked so many circles around the state capitol. And if you remember the protest phrase, uh, this is what democracy looks like, that's, if memory serves, I'm pretty sure it originated from that protest. Right, I do believe you're correct. I uh, mean, I don't think anybody can, I don't think anybody can forget Scott Walker, he's definitely one of the most famous people from Wisconsin, and that's not a positive. Uh, no, it's terrible. We have so many better people. I mean, maybe not Tony Evers. He's kind. Of, he's like the new governor. No, but not many people know about him. But Walker is part of his uh, mobilization. Like this was his first big controversial. Well, maybe not the most controversial thing he did early on, but the biggest media push was behind this because it affected unions and Democratic Party interests directly. And the way that he mo helped, as I said, use the labor class as a cudgel against itself is that he basically pitted private sector workers and mobilized them against public sector workers because Wisconsin benefits, you know, the Wisconsin University is the uh, biggest employer in the state. And so they offer pretty good benefits across the board. And they were even better back then. And like, I knew people who were working at the university at the time who were basically going to be losing money out of their own pocket. And as a brief aside, the Democrats like bailed immediately. Like they were willing to flinch on the first day and give Walker basically everything that he wanted, like all of the reductions in education, all of the cuts to pension benefits. They just wanted the right to continue to maintain, you know, the union dues. That was their whole fucking kit and caboodle. Before you go on, I want to make sure that the readers understand what I think you've, you're telling us here. So this is an astroturf movement designed to destroy uh, democratically granted labor rights. There's attracting popular support from angry reactionaries 
sort of disguised as a populist movement, correct? Mm -hmm. Right, because they're angry that their jobs don't get those benefits. And that was like such a common theme back then. It's like, oh. That that specific movement was ultimately called like right to work, if I Mm -hmm. remember correctly. Well, yeah, and it turned into right to work in like 2015. Oh, okay. No, no, I don't want to interrupt your story. You go ahead then. And so after this, like, you know, Scott Walker is a somewhat popular governor and he, Scott Fitzgerald and Robin Voss used their connections with Alec as to use Wisconsin as a policy laboratory and do like everything they can to undo like a hundred years of the most progressive legislation in, you know, American history. I just want to interrupt you, right? Um, they, uh, Alec is short for? American Legislative Exchange Council. The whole goal of this organization is to cross-pollinate these horribly reactionary ideas. And it comes complete with like, here's some sample language. Here are the talking points to distribute to media. Like they provide you with the whole kit. Right. They actually, to my understanding, they actually write model bills that you can just change a few words around and pass all over right. the United States. But I think what's really right. important for people to understand here that that if they're not familiar with Alec, this is an organization that is equally at home pushing for massive tax cuts for billionaires and corporations as it is pushing fascist, reactionary, right-wing culture war issues. And it sees, it, it as an organization, it straddles the gap between those things because there really isn't a gap. The purpose of one is to reinforce the other. Sure, it's just the Hydra. I mean, back then it was the Tea Party movement, and now it's the school boards, but it's the same people involved. Right. So right away, I just want to highlight to folks listening at home, you're already seeing the connections between capitalism and a fascist astroturf fake populist movement. And we're just at the beginning. And this happened in 2011. Right. And then he succeeded wildly because he got reelected. He got right to work across in Wisconsin and, you know, just kneecapped the DNR and labor for probably another decade. But But yeah, specifically Robin Voss and like some of the people in the legislature make a lot of money off of this. Like, especially those who have like workers and salaried employees. The university, because it is the biggest employer, kind of dictated market conditions. And it's kind of this way across most of the country where, you know, it's the universities or some other public institution that's the big employer. And he cut those benefits, not, well, let me to back up. It's not just the university that lost these benefits. It was like all of the teachers across Wisconsin, like all of those tiny, like even down to the smallest school district, all of the teachers lost all of these benefits. Right. this yeah. has to do with the the circle that Nina is talking about right. to uh, force people outside of the circle, reduce their influence, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it was like a crippled Wisconsin education because teachers couldn't get paid a com- a competitive rate for the states around us, and not to mention the funding cuts. But you know, it's just about stripping as much control over this capitalism and education as possible, and this is where it started, especially in Wisconsin. I think that's an important point to bring us back to the school board fights over CRT. What is commonly not being reported, and this is pretty pretty amazing, even for 
the pro-capitalist media and the pig empire about almost all of these school protests is if you start to dig into the money behind them, you will find that the vast majority of the movers and shakers in this movement are connected to school choice and school voucher movements, which exist. These are private organizations and that exist to get laws passed to allow parents to remove their children from public school and take their tax funding to a private organization. And I don't think you need to be uh, much of a genius to figure out that the vast majority of these school choice advocates and private voucher advocates are promoting schools that are Christian nationalists. They have a right-wing way of looking at, at history. They're de facto segregated, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. the, so what you're looking at here is capitalism and reaction in a perfect marriage that, as you're saying, is, is using stupid, angry people, many of whom are like weirdo conspiracy theorists from the absolute dregs of the internet and have been for the last 10 years. All of these movements are populated by the same people who spend a lot of time reading rents.com and that are now big, big backers of QAnon and shit, right? They are harnessing stupid, angry, broke people, a very small percentage of them, to give the appearance of popular support for not only this reactionary ideology, but also the highly lucrative, extractive capitalist operations that go along with it. The CRT theory is, is not about teaching critical race theory in schools in the United, like the, the fight. It's not about that because they don't even know what the fuck critical race theory is. Like the, right. the liberals are constantly going on. Oh, the right doesn't even know. I mean, that's true, but how, how, have, you not, right, how have you not clued into the fact that it's not fucking about this? It's about giving capital and reactionary Christian nationalism control over not just education, but the fucking budget for it too. Right, just shaking some money loose off the tree. Just keep shaking that tree until you get whole branches down, basically. And what's the choice? It's like if you want if you want your kid to learn about our terrible ter eh, the terrors of American history, you have to send them to a better school, so a different voucher school. And again, if depleting the public schools from resources and like you know the students that they need in seats. I can tell you from experience uh, that people like DeSantis have other ways than to just privatize education like i homeschool and i have to struggle with you know uh state requirements on what they think should be taught with regards to the holocaust um and not to mention the fact that you've got desantis putting his fingers into nearly every form of discourse like don't say gay bill or you know people in texas like greg abbott competing for that king and waiting to lead Trumpism, um, there's all kinds of attack vectors going on here. Yeah, it, it's, I mean, maybe it's an aside, but it's not really a coincidence that, you know, these reactionaries are all spun up like this. It's a reaction, ultimately, or maybe not ultimately, but at least kind of, to uh, the defund and abolish the police campaigns. Like, there were kind of popular movements in civil society that were like going at those budgets and you know potentially impacting people's uh, very comfortable livelihoods and i think it's safe to say that what we're looking at here particularly in this example but in the two examples we're going to 
we're going to go on for is reactionary organizers and capital taking advantage of what amounts to a massive white lash, right? Because at the end of the day, if you look at the demographics for the United States, inside of like 10 years, maybe even a little less, I think it's about, about 2030, it's going to be really hard to reinforce white supremacy demographically. You're going to need to mobilize popular support even as your ideas are becoming less popular. So what we are talking about here is a picture show designed to give popular appeal and authority to a minority position that ultimately benefits fascists and capitalists and the vast majority of fascists and capitalists who are both of those things at the same time. Why don't we move on to the next section? Yeah, I think we can expand on the goals of these school board battles and compare them to an extreme example of a reactionary putsch disguised as a popular protest, this faux trucker convoy in Canada. I, I personally find it interesting that it produced several of these copycat convoys in America in United States. They don't seem to be taken off the same way. Adam... We got to wheel you out as our resident Canadian. Can you please give us a backstory of the convoy? Oh, absolutely. Should I, uh, I'll, I'll make sure to, to trim out all my uh, boots. Uh, <laughs> no, leave them in, please. <laughs> so this isn't the first this show. Yeah. <laughs> this isn't the, the first time that this has been tried. Uh, the first time that I could find. Uh, was way back, if you remember, uh, Greta Thunberg, when she did her tour through North America. Uh, she triggered pretty much all of these exact same people uh, way back then, and they called it the United We Roll Convoy, if you remember that, if you got any of that in the States. Right, I heard a very little bit about it because there was some like extremely obvious astroturfing in that movement. Yes. Yeah, and they didn't get very far. So there was a lot of white noise when they started, but they couldn't maintain the same anger, I guess, basically. And they, uh, and they petered out maybe in the prairies even. I'm not sure they left the prairies. They might have um, stayed in Alberta because it largely started there. And it largely started with the exact same people. Um, the... Literally four or five, I'm pretty sure, of the named founders of this um, faux convoy thing that's happening now were the exact same people that were involved in United We Roll. And um, even back then, it was well known that these were um, very fine people, air quotes, uh, white supremacists, uh, Canadian yellow vesters from that movement, uh, all of those kind of reactionary Thanks. Just for listeners who, who may at this later date have forgotten what we're talking about last month. So this is a protest convoy calling itself truckers driving across various parts of the country to then occupy Ottawa. Yep. Okay. I just want to make sure that we know exactly what we're talking about here. So when we say the faux trucker protest, that's what we mean. So they tried this before and it didn't work. Please continue. No. Yeah. So this is when they actually, they had enough anger this time 
because of the uh, COVID nonsense and the anti-vax nonsense and the masking nonsense that they pretty quickly rolled from an anti-COVID, anti-lockdown convoy to a um, uh, to a coup. Let's say what it was. They they changed to an attempted coup. Well, I think the timing is really important here, which is, again, very rarely yeah. reported in the American media. Uh, Canada had an election not Six long months before. Ago? Right. And then yeah. after these protesters who initially claimed that they were about removing the mandates had been there yeah. for like a couple of days or whatever, w- what did they ask for? Oh, no, it wasn't even, see, it didn't even get that long. As they were rolling in, their message mm-hmm. would change. So as they were rolling across and they picked up more and more people, some of the people that they picked up would add, uh, I think one of the first controversial signs might have been a hang Trudeau sign or a fuck Trudeau sign or something like that added to one of the trucks. And then um, they started to produce uh, longer, those longer poster size, lots of words, posters, where they try to explain their, their um, positions and one of them was uh, uh, getting rid of Trudeau and putting in one of their own speakers or one of their own representatives. And um, right, okay. <laughs> I'm pretty so, sure that I, right there—that's that's the dictionary. That's the dictionary definition of a coup. I apologize for interrupting you to always bring this back to our American listeners, but I want to be able to put this in context for them so they understand. This is kind of like Trailer Park Boys, um, January sixth. Right, so that's so accurate. That's pretty much what we're talking about pretty, here. Pretty much, yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah, but it's not like occupying with the people. I mean, these were like trucks, like filling the town, right? Oh yeah, like this is it, right? Is once they got there, they uh, they uh, very quickly occupied, um, and by occupied, I literally mean filling both sides of one way streets. Uh, sometimes they left a single lane on a three-lane, one-way downtown street and things like that. And the core group of them, if you can believe this from an American perspective, the core group group of them literally parked in front of the parliament buildings. <laughs> well, like, who, who like are these right people in front. involved? Well, okay, so this is the thing, right? Is they call themselves truckers, and they've convinced a lot of people that they're just normal workers. But if you paid attention... Uh, there was a lot of trucks still on the road uh, that were actually doing the work, whereas these people were, as it turns out, at a month-long party in the streets of uh, their capital city, in some cases thousands of miles away from their home, with a big rig, which I know are, you know, they're real, they're very well known for being uh, good on gasoline, and diesel and all those things. They don't use very much of that shit at all. And yeah, they were literally parked downtown and they were given the time and the space to move in. Um, There was a a picture that went around near the end. It was about week three and another group of reporters and photographers and stuff. And they just, right, exactly. And the, these groups of photographers had gone around interviewing these people about, you know, what their, what they're protesting were. And there was literally two of these white men on the street, I won't tell you where yet, that were being interviewed and they you know they're there and why are you here, sir? And why are you here, sir? We're here to protest. We're oppressed people 
here to protest our rights and get rid of this oppressive government. And I swear that this has been documented as happening while these two gentlemen were sitting on the streets of the capital of my country in an inflatable hot tub <laughs> complaining about oppression. You, you can tell from this that they're not workers because they've had the money to not work for a month with their big rigs. They didn't take the, the you know, they didn't take the Prius out for a, for a drive around vacation. They on purpose brought, in some cases, the family and their massive trucks, those that did bring trucks. Because this is another thing. They call themselves truckers. There was a whole shit ton of non-truckers down there. There was a lot of trucks. But the majority of this protest was actually made up of people who were not in trucks. Well, that's good, because that's one of the other things I wanted to clarify. So yeah. the, first thing, the, <laughs> the first thing I want to say is, so these people announce and intend attempt to overturn a recently elected government and you're telling me the ottawa police literally just let them drive in even though they said that before they even got there yep like okay. you guys not have like highway checkpoints can like the mounties not like set up checkpoints you, on the road divert traffic oh, maybe <laughs> yeah yeah you would have had to have any of the three one, two, three, by the time they got to Ottawa, levels of police and other jurisdictions, you would have had to have them actually give a shit, though, right? Huh. Because, okay. as, like, they drove, and they drove, and they drove, and they were public the entire time, and they were on um, instant media, sometimes tell, tell, telling the truth, and most of the times lying about their sizes, but they were accurate about where they were, because they wanted people to show up and join them. They, they, they broadcast every, every mile of them going. So would it be fair to say then that this is a clear example of the security forces aligning with reaction? Oh, yeah. We I mean, talking about above. Yeah. Okay. Like this is this is exactly this is exactly what's happened. Okay, so well, I mean, if he... somebody's going to be like, "We're going to coup you," and you don't defend your guy against the coup, then you're for the coup, right? Yeah. So I, I want to. Here's the other thing I want to, because you have to remember that even though I live in in Canada, I'm still a stranger in a strange land here. So I, I just want to make sure that I understood everything you were saying. So what you're saying is that the the even the truckers who were at this protest. So what I've heard is that they're owner operators. There are people who essentially own a half a million dollar trucking business, right? Minimum, Whereas like minimum, right? Minimum. Where or or ranchers or or whatever uh, farmers who own large large farms and have semis as part of operating that farming equipment. And, yes. and what I've also been told is that like um, a great number of the what we would consider labor class truckers, people who don't own their own business, people who work for another company, a great number of those people are, are were not only non-white and therefore not particularly interested in a white supremacist protest, but also openly against this? Uh, yeah, so the, the, the second major um, stand that the truckers set up uh, was at... Uh, the border crossing in Alberta, I believe they call it Coots. Right. And this is one of the major commercial trucking 
border crosses. And this is, again, people who were claiming to be truckers blocking up this border crossing. And yeah, in Canada, actually, you couldn't, you wouldn't be able to tell from looking at any of those pictures, but it is my understanding that in Canada, the vast majority of the people who drive trucks who are in fact workers are of uh, Indian, uh, Hindu or Sikh descent Right. in general. I, I, I know read that. that. I'd also read that the major trucking unions were vehemently opposed to all of this. Oh, God, yes. Yeah, yeah. No, they they got no support from any of their official outlets, from any of the official truckers, like the Canadian um, Teamsters Union told, told them off. And, and the thing is, there were some of the Canadian media who were going out to Alberta and going into, what is it, Montana or whichever of the northern states that crossing goes into. And they were interviewing Canadian truckers stuck on the other side, either empty waiting to go home to refill or full trying to deliver these necessary goods that the province needs. Because again, Coots is one of the major places where Alberta gets all of their shit from the States. And there was and, a third blockade in Windsor. And, and I, I happen to know people who live in Windsor. So I can tell you that anybody working in the manufacturing section lost at, at least two weeks worth of pay from all, all of this, right? Like they, they couldn't work. That was not a popular position among labor in Windsor. People from outside, although I'm sure there were some Windsorites came, but they cost the labor class in, in that Canadian border city uh, a, a lot of money and a lot of agita. So I guess that brings me to just my last question. This has been portrayed in the American media, even by, in some cases, liberal media in America, which, by the way, is a pretty loose word. I don't really think the New York Times is is uh, particularly liberal in anything but a European sense of the word. But is this was this a popular protest? Was this even popular with Canadians? Oh, God, no. They, yeah, there, there was, it's weird because what it seems to have done, the more I've paid attention to some of the, some of the fallout and some of the interviews, what it seems to have done is cut like a slice of cake cross section through every subdivision, every, every, every group in Canada. Um, a lot of them not understanding the primary focus, which is, of course, I mean, this is the point of fascism, is they hide in the open and pretend to be some, something else. Right. Uh, but one of the videos that I tried to watch recently, uh, and I, I, couldn't, I couldn't get through it, was uh, uh, an interview with four First Nations people. This was on a First Nations media source. I believe it was Real People's Media out of Tayendinaga, right. I believe. And they were interviewing First Nations people who were open, happy, proud supporters of what this protest was trying to do. I was like, okay, I, let me hear it, sure. And I got through one, one and a half stories. I can't remember one of them. It was either the end of the first story or the beginning of the second story. Uh, one of the people's mentions pandemic. Right. And that's, that was my, <laughs> that's it. That was it. I was like, I can't listen to this anymore. So, I just can't. I just... Yeah. But again, talk about just, just yes. to make sure, just to sort of bring it back around to the larger discussion we're having here. So what this is, is a, a, um, an attempt 
to and and I, I I think we we haven't really had much of a chance to discuss this. We may come up with it in a minute, but an attempt to sort of astroturf a popular protest out of a bunch of crazy, angry people who believe a ton of QAnon nonsense for the purposes of reactionary organizations with that want to overturn a democratic election. And I, I can only assume corporations who want to end all vaccine mandates so they can make, you know, the maximum amount of money and not give a damn about their workers' lives. Yep. Does that accurately describe what you saw? As far as I understand it, um, for a lot of the people involved, yes. You hear interviews about, you know, I'm not involved with this. I was here because I don't like being forced to get a vaccine, but I'm not here for all the other stuff. And right. you can you can think that, but you're well the reason the reason this yeah. is important because it is because it leads into my next point right which is the white supremacists and fascist organizers of this and as as adam mentioned and i think i'll give him a chance to go in a little bit more on that in a second but as adam, as adam mentioned many of the leaders of this movement have long-standing prior associations with reactionary racist white supremacists fascist organizations and protests and uh, all of those guys, as soon as the heat started to come, they all ran away. So, right? And I like the one that was most obvious to me was like that Pat Kin King ass clown who's like um, a well known social media Canadian white nationalist who preaches the um, white genocide conspiracy theory fairly regularly. And that guy's like, fight it out to the final end, buddies. By the way, I'm taking off. They ended up arresting him anyway. But I, I thought that was the perfect example of how, like I said, angry, stupid conspiracy theorists are being weaponized by what, as Adam is going to tell us, is a pretty um, disgusting tier of reactionary fascist organizing. Oh, yeah, no, this guy's a real hilarious piece of work. I, I've tried to find the article since, but the article went around Facebook the day that he was in court. And not only was uh, his um, request for bail denied, because uh, he was arrested second or third. Uh, Tamara Litch was one of the other protesters. Uh, she, her bail was initially denied. She might be out now, I'm not sure. Uh, but both of these people have in the past simultaneously proclaimed uh, yellow vest, white supremacist values. Uh, and this isn't like this isn't the olden days when, you know, you'd know they were the okay, Nazi because I... they wore the yellow because they wore the yellow, the yellow laces on their shoes. This is instant media Nazis. These people are filmed on video or screenshots of their social media posts being Extreme. And I, I just want people to understand again for an American audience, the Yellow Vest movement in Canada has no connection to the Yellow Vest movement in Paris. Thank this you. is literally I was just about to ask. This yeah, is yeah, literally no. reactionaries adopting somebody else's costume and posture to yeah. once again further reactionary goals. Now that doesn't mean I'm vouching for the Yellow Vest movement in France. I've seen things that suggest to me they might be far left and i've seen things that suggest to me that they are definitely reactionary pieces of shit i think maybe it might depend on the given protest 
But the fact is, when he says yellow vest movement, this is a wholly reactionary, white supremacist, right-wing position that was popular in Canada a few years ago and has kind of faded out of prominence. Go ahead, Adam. I'm sorry to interrupt you. All those basically what's happened with the yellow vest is after United We Roll, when the yellow vest stuff kind of died, they crawled back into the woodwork and they came out as various. Um, Canada has kind of a, a, a Western separatist vibe going on. You right. all might, might have heard about the issues with Quebec, but this is a completely other thing. Alberta specifically uh, has always felt that it's not being treated well by the rest of Canada and there's always been a reactionary heart to that province. That's where most of the big reactionaries have come from in Canadian oh, the white political bullshit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, so, I mean I mean some of these people were flying Confederate flags, some of these people were flying Trump twenty twenty four flags. And if there is any province in Canada where you're gonna see that stuff out in the open, it's Alberta. Yeah, uh, you do see it everywhere, actually. This is the scary thing about Canada, is the amount of American racist iconography that happily gets picked up up here. Like, so many of those Confederate flags. Like, man, you guys, are you are you kidding me right now? That's so it's weird. just insane. It's just right. insane. Well, you see it in Germany, too, because of the stand-in for iconography that they can't legally display. Okay, oh, so... I hadn't known that. That's weird. That's yep. That's gross. <laughs> So I think it's fair to say, right, we, we've covered who this is, right? This right. is an amalgamation of small business oh, owners. Oh, sorry, hang on. One more thing about Pat King, just okay. so that everyone can understand how at, at their core, how just, how purely rotten and disgusting these people are, right? Because I pointed out that they claim indigenous status, and you Americans might not understand in Canada what that means. Right. Um, because it's a huge, it's a huge, massive deal up here to be an apparently white uh, appearing racialized person, and then suddenly saying, "Oh my God, I was uh, the victim of the victim of the '60s scoop, and I really am First Nations." And but because of our history of divide and conquer and destruction and that kind of stuff, you have these same cracker fascists who don't understand, for instance, why First Nations people, why Indigenous people are allowed to fish and hunt under different regulations. So they suddenly get some genealogical expert to dig into their history and find that one of their great-great-great-great-great-great-uncles married a quote-unquote Indian woman. And so suddenly, hey, that means I'm Métis now. Because Métis... Technically speaking, the word actually means basically half-breed in French. And the Métis people adopted it as their name, but all of the Métis people who are really Métis are descended from specific families and specific groups of people in and around Winnipeg and the prairies and some parts of Ontario. Certainly, they were not original Métis out here in the East. This is not a thing that happens. There would have been families moving around, but they would have had an easy-to-trace familial connection back to their family. 
Because if you are an indigenous person up here in a, our societally so far failed attempt at even acknowledging that reconciliation is a necessary thing that needs to happen, we've been giving preferential treatment to people who claim First Nation status, because this is the problem, is in a lot of places there have been essentially white people who had quote-unquote Indian friends, or their parents had Indian friends, because a lot of them can't even name where they came from, where, you know, they say, I'm, oh, I'm, I've, I've discovered this ancestor and I'm a First Nations person. Okay, well, so from where? And almost all of these people, it changes over time where they're from. Right. Um, Pat King and Tamara Litch were two of these people. <laughs> and so, I, I, I think it's fair to point out that that also ties in with the fascist conspiracy culture. Because yep. there's a whole movement that goes across both Canada and the United States devoted to an old conspiracy theory about a lost white race. And you literally, I know this is the this is going to sound absolutely bonkers, but there are a whole bunch of white Nazis running around saying that they are the indigenous inhabitants of North America because yep. of this lost white race that was exterminated by the indigenous people we recognize as first nations in North America here. And yeah. like, it's, it's all bunk and it's all based on conspiracy nonsense from the, in the book of Mormon, right? Right. It loosely yeah. ties into the book of Mormon. I was going to mention that, but yeah. that's not really the important part. The important part is the ability to claim indigenous status is weaponized actively by fascists. So yep. when Pat King does that, not only is he providing himself a shield to say, I'm not a white supremacist, I'm not even a white guy, but he's also signaling to this angry, reactionary, conspiracy-minded, fascist cult that these guys are weaponizing to create these problems. And I, I, I just... There's one more question I remember that I want to ask you, Adam, before we move on to uh, allowing Charles to talk about who benefits from this. What I want to what I wanted to ask you is I heard something about a Western separatist white supremacist militia being part of at least one of these protests. There's a big arrest. Um, the word diagonal comes to mind. What the fuck? Could you explain a little bit about them? Okay, so I think what you're talking about is uh, the the major arrest. So there, the second protest, the second ma major protest that I was talking about with this protest in Coots, Alberta. Um, and yeah, the one of the big major splashes for this is because this was one of the first ones that was busted. And this isn't a surprise because Alberta, but they got a fuck ton of guns from that first like it was an impressive amount, large tableful. Because you know how the cops always show off their show off their furs afterwards, right? And have the tables fulls of guns. There was a I'm, table I'm full gonna, of fucking I'm guns. Just, I'm just gonna let you be Canadian, because like yeah, that's, that's one of the most Canadian things I've ever heard. Yeah. That, that, oh, you guys don't. Oh, okay. So yes, because oh, so, so this is the, this is the this is the 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 funny thing about Canadians uh, that I forget about Americans is um, we still talk about every murder that happens in every city. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> because we don't have very many. There are kindly people. So folks. we can count them. 
<laughs> and if it gets over a uh, hundred, then you're like the murder city of Canada for that year or something. Just, and I'm not, I'm not kidding. This is real. Just wow. let me help, help the American How audience crazy. out. It honestly so, looked, it honestly looked like the gun collection of like any two given three percenters. Yes. But Adam is not wrong. That's more yep. than enough to cause a tremendous amount of violence. Just the oh, yeah, fact the that our country. Of- the fact that our country has normalized stockpiling arsenals doesn't make it right. <laughs> oh, so you guys don't do that with drugs either, then? You guys, your cops, don't do that big presentation. No, they do. That's not the part that was just, Canadian. It was the okay. way you were saying it was rather a lot of guns. Uh, the <laughs> average American person saw that picture and went, oh, okay, so they busted one three percenter. Oh, shit, but they again, got my right? uncle. <laughs> folks listening at home. Americans are not sane about this. It was a lot of guns or enough guns to cause uh, a tremendous amount of violence. And I, I'm understanding that that the Canadian police have in some way um, said that that violence was specifically targeted. Yeah, see, I'm not you. You mentioned a word. What word was that? Because I haven't heard this word. Oh, Diagalon. Okay. So as it turns out, there's a Western separatist um, white supremacist militia that operates in this area and a bunch of guys associated with that long prior to the Coots protest were the people involved in this bust where they found the cache of weapons. Uh, I believe it was the RCMP, your mounted police. Okay. So I believe the RCMP found the cache of weapons. They then discovered that a bunch of these guys were part of this white supremacist Western separatist militia. These guys have military and police training. Like, these are not amateurs, okay? These are right-wing fucking militia nut jobs. Considerably oh. even more dangerous than your average weekend warrior in Michigan. And further to the point, I don't know whether or not we can trust the police, but what the police have said is that these guys had specific plans to assassinate Alberta's public health officer. Holy so, cow. And RCMP members as well. Right, cops. Holy so cow. whether this was part of the trucker protest and and, and the, the quote-unquote truckers are lying, or this was a violent fascist reactionary group looking to take advantage of the unstable environment to literally do fucking murders that are going to cause a tremendous amount of chaos and outrage, right? Like Canadian people are not ready to hear that it's open season on the RCMP. That that's not a normal thing in this country, right. right? It's normal for Michigan, but not Canada. Right. So whether or not this was part of the protest or it was just a Nazi group taking advantage of dumb, angry people, like we saw in Ottawa, this was very serious and extremely, extremely fascist. And I right. think I think unless Adam has anything to add. I think we've kind of proven the point. Yeah. That this we've is pulled not, every tool out of the box. So right, this is reactionary, violent, and fascist in nature. Okay. Yeah. A Pat King, if a pack, if there aren't Pat Kings in mass numbers, a Pat King has to have money. Who is right? And that's this? right. That's where I think we need to 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 go into because the second side of this is the capitalist angle. And Adam, I just wanted to ask you to make sure that I'm cor- correct here. It was not the majority of the money donated to this shit show and these various occupations and what amounted to a slow rolling attempt to to overturn the elected Canadian government. It was not regular people, right? 
There well, was see, a it's weird of- because there was a shit ton of big money that came from the U.S., But that didn't actually end up making up not quite the majority of the money. I'm really not talking about foreign interference in the election. I'm talking about whether or not the people donating to this protest were everyday Canadians or they were rich business owners. And I know. I see. Yeah. I know that a great number of those donations came from people who donate regularly to political parties, people who are part of business alliance associations, business owners, wealthy dynastic families. And yeah, yeah. that is in Canada or the United States. There yeah, was a ton I understand of American, that. That's true for sure. There was a ton of American money. And I guess what I'm going to do next is I'm going to ask Charles to explain that. Sure, why, it's capitalist. I mean, we don't even need to name names. But why would they do this? It's, well... Uh, you can create an uproar to a flash in the pan that uh, creates a political effect. I mean, it may seem like innocuous that they were trying to get rid of Trudeau, but I mean, just a few months ago, he kind of put the kibosh on that one pipeline out west, right? And, you know, the next conservative guy, for instance, might uh, turn that tap on along with the money behind it. Fossil fuel regulations in Canada actually produce a lot more reactionary response in this country than they do even in ours. So you have to understand when Charles is talking about this, this being about the this Western separatist, you know, a, a fossil fuel regulation is enough to get these people whose entire economy depends on dirty oil, like extra dirty oil. So the closing of a pipeline is a cultural reactionary touch point in Canada. It's not an economic issue. It's an everything issue, particularly yeah. in Alberta. Yeah, Go yeah ahead, for Charles. sure. Well, yeah, with a small amount of effort, you can leverage a mass of people against this political objective using the right tools. You know, your Peter Kings, your liches of various sites, sorts, necromantic and political. But, you know, how is... Well, I guess the question that I have, it's like, yeah, they're benefiting, but how is the government reacting? Like, are they sitting on their hands? I think the last thing is that, you know, while we understand that this protest was not really about mask mandates, I don't think we should ignore the fact that the people donating to this, the business owners, the corporate CEOs, these are the people who stand the most to benefit from removing any and all COVID restrictions in the middle of a global plague. Like people want to pretend this is over. There's a brand new variant making its way through New York as we speak. So I just want to be clear when, when Charles says capitalists, he's not wrong, but specifically the actual fucking capitalists donating to this AstroTurf fake populist shit show. Those people are directly fucking benefiting from supporting this slow-moving coup attempt. Right. It's just a a small-money investment for a potentially huge return, like any other investment. Right. So when Charles asks, how is the government reacting, I also want to know, how are the cops reacting to this? (laughs) Well, I mean, it 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 was an open coup attempt, right? They drove in. They took days and days to get there. So, of course, the cops were waiting. 
and pulled them out of their trucks and kicked the living fuck out of it. No, of course that's not what happened because they were white. Right, pulled the so, trucks away. <laughs> Charles made the comment really early in the in the episode when I had pointed out that this hot tub asshole interview was on week three. That should give you a very good starting indication of how the cops handled it. They did nothing. In fact, not only did they do nothing, they broadcast on the fourth day that there was, I think this might be an actual quote, nothing we can do. Close quote. (laughs) Well, if I may ask, what did Trudeau do? Okay, so this also gets into Canada, right? Because of there's there's a lot of jurisdictional breakdown in Canada, and police are a big deal in that. Um, because if Trudeau brings out the police at the wrong time, he's overstepping his bounds. Because technically speaking, all that had to happen was the mayor of Ottawa says no, tells the police arrest them, and tells the big rigged. Um, the tow trucks that they used to move the buses to move the big rigs for four days. Thank you very much. And they would not do that. Would not. So the next thing that would have had to have happened from jurisdictional wise would have been uh, a, a, a little known person you might have heard of. His name's Doug Ford, the Premier of Ontario and brother to uh, the late, not great Rob Ford. Uh, crack smoking mayor of Toronto. Crack smoking mayor of Toronto. <laughs> <laughs> I so want to know who we're talking about here. He, he could have. He he could have sent the OPP in, also at any time. He could have even sent them in before Ottawa had made a decision. But that again would have been him, in Canadian polite speak, technically overstepping his bounds and not allowing the mayor of Ottawa to do his thing first. Which is also why Trudeau didn't do anything at the beginning. Because Trudeau has two options. Trudeau could send in the RCMP, or he could do what he does with the uh, indigenous protests, most especially the Mohawk. He skips the RCMP, and he goes straight to the goddamn army. Right. And what? none of that happened here either. Wow. No, so, and, and, so, and I just want to be clear, right? Like, you do have three overlapping jurisdictions here. But the way it was explained to me by some of my Canadian friends, and I just want to confirm mm. with you that this is accurate, like any one of these three people, probably any one of these three levels of government probably could have taken charge. But yes. once the Ottawa police started passing the buck and saying, well, there's nothing we could do, nobody else wanted to own that hand grenade. Exactly. Is what I was told. That is my understanding as well. Yes. Okay. It's essentially a hot potato at that point because you, as soon as you catch that hot potato, you have to own it. You you are not allowed to throw it away. It's got right. blue you on it. You start failing as soon as you touch it. As soon so, as you touch it. So I just want to be clear. The yeah. Ottawa police and, and the Ontario Provincial Police and the RCMP let these guys drive all the way across the country to yep. overturn the government, which they announced yep. they were doing while they were driving across the country. Yep. Let them roll in. Yeah. Let them establish a base camp literally in front of parliament. So pause, pause. They let them establish two base camps because what a lot of people don't understand is before they went to Ottawa, there was a farm 50 miles outside of Ottawa. Right. It's the middle of winter. The farmer doesn't have anything in his fields. He has turned his entire fields over to these people. 
Oh, jolly. They have they have set up a wow. staging area with security. And right. th- when they left downtown, that's as far as a lot of them went. Right. So yes, and then from from their from their farm outside of Ottawa, they set up as you said their their downtown core of operations was literally right in the heart of of Ottawa, right in front of the Parliament buildings. I want to keep going though, because this is even dumber. So so we're we're, we're <laughs> they, we've we're establishing that a bunch of people that have announced their intention to do a slow rolling coup. The police have allowed them to drive across the country, establish multiple base camps. They have then blocked the streets with a bunch of semis that make them appear to be a much larger protest than they really are. Mm -hmm. This is being funded by a bunch of rich people and foreign entities. After four days, the Ottawa police say, there's nothing we can do. Pretty much. At which point... Ontario, where the premier started all of this by expressing sympathy with these fascist protesters, he says, not my fucking problem. And then the prime minister, who is the target of this slow moving coup, is like, what the fuck do I do? And basically does nothing for about three weeks. Well, okay, so we can't forget that (laughs) when they when they blocked uh, it was okay. So shit happened right. when the third protest started and actually stopped cars in the Detroit Windsor Ambassador Bridge. Right, because like I was saying earlier, that cost like hundreds of millions of dollars. All them companies, exactly. all them workers, tons of people lost money on that one. Exactly. And if you notice, though, that did not take an Emergency Measures Act or the RCMP. That was Premier Doug Ford who literally said the words, this is affecting our economy now, you have to move, the OPP are moving in. Right, well, I guess that's that brings me to my next question, because it sounds to me like you're saying very clearly that this could have been stopped at any time anytime. over the course of this entire anytime. slow-moving coup. Like, like you, American <laughs> listeners, please understand, he's talking about a January 6th that lasts three weeks it's maybe slightly less violent although again i have seen tons of reports that those people were threatening people wearing masks they were harassing minorities they were harassing women in the street they were aggressive and intimidating but there wasn't a metric fuck ton of actual violence but otherwise this is january 6th it lasts three weeks so what i want and it could have been stopped at any time right yep in fact it could have been stopped before what i want to ask adam is what did the Canadian government do instead of just stopping this? (laughs) So after it was pretty much at four weeks before the prime minister basically had realized that this can't go on anymore. The, The violence thing is interesting, right? Because there was one thing that they were doing that a lot of people have seemed to have forgotten already. And for the first three weeks, those horns were never stopping. Right. Never. So an entire city, the capital city of the country, every single person in that city was held hostage and could not sleep. No baby could sleep, no grandmothers could, for weeks at a time because of the nonstop air horns from these fucking assholes. Because there were enough trucks to fill the air with noise. 
I just want to interject here for anybody buying the Nazi line. Oh, you're upset about a little bit of noise and horns honking. Jesus. Like we sat outside of Manuel Noriega's headquarters when we invaded Panama playing like we're not going to take it by Twisted Sister and other rock bands extremely loud till he surrendered. So there is a point where loud noise stops being a nuisance and becomes a form of psychological torture. We've actually written that down. That's in U.S. military handbooks for interrogations and such. Right. And this is before people started to record podcasts and had roads outside their houses. Right. So I, I want Adam, though, to help us understand how this finished. So, yeah, when they finally decided to move in, um, if you, I I don't know how many of you actually caught the news that morning. I spent several hours wasting my life watching the CBC coverage of that weekend when they finally moved the police in. And if anyone noticed, they very specifically were not kettling any of these people. They very, very specifically moved with um, the first layer of police that were involved with any of these people that was ever shown were um, un, ungunned and untasered officers that carried uh, billy clubs or big sticks. Uh, and they were literally moving at a snail's pace. And they were only moving a block at a time. They were leaving. They had explicitly left multiple, what they even called on the news, back doors open so that you could leave. This was the cop saying, it's now time. This is over. Thank you for your, thank you for your support. This is now over. Go home. I'm sure all of this will be rather jarring to any of our listeners who watched police, uh, clubbing veterans and soccer moms during the George Floyd protests in the United States because oh I was going to get describing there. doesn't sound like that at all I was going to get there because that doesn't sound like what happens in Canada either and in fact this 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 is an interesting segue to to a, a a little one of the really you know pieces of diamond shit that happened in this whole movement <laughs> because literally the first arrest that day guess who it was or one of the first, was a indigenous old man alone by himself in a different city protesting on a street of his home downtown Main Street blocking a single lane of traffic with a sign that said something like, remember the children. Oh, wow. Jesus. It's a little Wild. That, that's all that's almost as on the nose as banning Moz, which we were talking about up there. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean it's, it's exactly the, yeah, exactly. So yeah, that's what's happening in Ottawa the whole time. All of these streets are being filled with, as I say, the the lowest armed cops that they could find. And those were where the first contact. And if you were an idiot, like you see, I saw a couple of these people get arrested because there was always people playing with the cops and taunting them and being arseholes. And one guy literally slipped on some uncleared, an uncleared pile of snow downtown and slid, and slid into the cop's feet. That right. was it. You were done. Right. A couple closed around him and the line kept moving and away they okay, went. What I want to really, I think what I really want to know here about this Um, Because, I mean, obviously it sounds to me like the fascist cops were doing their best not to harm the fascist protesters. Yeah, 100%. Who being 
cool beans. But what I really want to know is where the emergencies acts fit into all this, because there's like well, a lot of lumpen reactionary faux leftists online who are pointing aggressively to this emergencies act and saying like literally, you know, shit like Trudeau is Hitler, like major American commentator. I think Elon Musk at one point compared Trudeau to Hitler because of this emergencies act. And I don't think any fucking American understands the emergencies act or whether or not it was even necessary here. Yes. Oh, it was certainly not necessary. Let, let me let me start with that. It was not necessary, and Doug Ford proved it, and Alberta RCMP proved it when they cleared out Coots and when they cleared out um, Ambassador, Ambassador Bridge. Bridge. Yeah. It was not necessary. This was the excuse that Trudeau gave himself to make it seem, because what this allowed him to okay, do but was... Before you go on, I just want to know, is the Emergencies Act martial law? Because that's the yes. way it's being portrayed in, in our country. Yes. Okay. It pretty much is martial law. Yes. And this is the first time that this particular act has been used. It is a replacement for the old Emergency Measures Act that Trudeau's father invoked during the earlier, um, what's called the FLQ crisis in Canada in the late 60s, early 70s. Quebec separatists kidnapped and killed some people. And Trudeau said, just watch me, and then put in, Trudeau the Elder said, just watch me, and then brought in the Emergency Measures Act and put tanks on the streets of some Quebec cities. See, folks, Canadians have political dynasties, too. They're just like us. Absolutely. I have several happening right now, in fact, that want to be dynasties. Um, Okay, so the Emergency Act, you're saying it's like martial law, but it wasn't necessary, and it doesn't seem to have led to a bunch of police beating on protesters. Well, no, but what it did allow him to do, though, uh, because the way that they did the operation in Ottawa is they literally brought in police from all over Canada. They they filled the city because you'd see these frontline unarmed-ish officers, but behind them at all times were both SWAT and horses. And only Toronto has horses. Right, I did. I did see some people online disingenuously saying that Canadian police in fatigues were the army had been sent in. No, that's just what. Right. Yeah, as far as I know, there were no military police or army personnel there. That was just some of the various SWAT units in Canada, Toronto especially, really like their green fatigues and their Molly. And yeah, they love. (laughs) They love to play reactionary soldiers. So absolutely. I just, I, I guess this is the point I need to hammer home here in terms of all of this concluding up. Like, this is not like Nazi Germany, right? Like, like that, that comparison is utterly absurd, correct? Well, yes, because the, okay, so the, the way that this act works is uh, the government is allowed to invoke it and they get a 72 hour grace period. But by invoking the act, uh, I'm probably framing this wrong, but it's my understanding that by invoking the act, they also invoke an emergency session of parliament 72 hours later. And if that emergency session of parliament votes down the act, then the act immediately stops and was never legal. Right. And I, I, is that what happened? Or And so, no, what happened was... 
And this is why we're not Nazi Germany, is because what happened was they had that vote. Uh, Trudeau's party, with the help of the NDP, won that vote. So everyone agreed, yes, you needed these 72 hours. Trudeau went home with his victory, and I think it was the next day where he then announced, I am now dropping the Emergency Measures Act. It is no longer in effect. It has done its job, and we are now back to normal. And it's all political theater because it could have been knocked out in the first place. One hundred percent. Exactly right. Right. And I I mean, I think if you want to understand this issue from and how this this ended. Right. It is important for Americans to understand that this is being portrayed to us in our media very differently than what Adam is describing. Yeah. All of this is completely new to me. Right. (laughs) And and so if, if the emergencies act in this instance is primarily logistical and the police are gently removing protesters who are in the middle of a slow rolling coup, the uh, excitement level for reactionaries in America is much lower than the story that we were in fact sold. And I guess I want to make it clear, but I guess before we move on from this point, I just want to make it clear that, you know, over and above all of the framing of the above the the convoys planners and the convoys organizers and prominent displays of coup material, um, even the hate stuff and v- open displays of Nazi flag and Nazi pro- propaganda, like yeah, literally, I saw an actual swastika. There was an actual swastika um, being flown. There were uh, swastikas being being painted onto Canadian flags, and they were being flown. Um, all of this happened before they got to Ottawa. All of it did. So (laughs) I guess the last question before we move on that I have is, so this is all over or has this had an energizing effect on reactionary politics in Canada, much in the same way the CRT fight in the United States has? The way the Canadian political spectrum kind of works is we've got, the, the the our democratic ish party are called the liberals and they're our centrist party and the more right wing party we have at least two of those now that are major parties one just calls themselves the conservative party and another one is a breakaway party called the people's party of canada um the people's party of canada broke away from the conservative party because their leader lost the leadership. Uh, the Conservatives picked for their most recent leader, and I know this sounds annoying, I'm getting there, uh, the most um, mainstream milk toast white dude that was offered on the leadership. Okay. Uh, after this whole thing came out, because the, the Conservative Party were essentially simultaneously supporting and condemning at various times from various people these protests right so after the the after the um emergency measures stuff blew over the conservatives called an emergency meeting of their party and kicked out their leader because he and, was and, not and fascist enough clear, that's not because that's not because he supported the truckers no he kicked them out because he was primarily against the trucker convoy and was literally not towing a fascist enough line. 
for the party. So the major right-wing party in Canadian democracy just fired its leader for not being a big enough Nazi. Yes. And <laughs> they've chosen uh, to replace him as temporary leader, a woman named Candace Bergen, not that woman, a Canadian Not Murphy woman, Brown. Not Murphy Brown. Uh, who is very proudly photographed in more than one occasion with a MAGA hat on, if you want to know the kind of person that we're talking about. Wow. And a Canadian politician. Is a Canadian politician. <laughs> and uh, more and more people are starting to throw their hat into the ring to be leader, to be leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. Because why not? I have seen four of these names so far. Uh, only one of them is a standard Canadian conservative as opposed to a right-wing nationalist conservative like, like, like we have now. They've gone old school and picked out a leader from the previous generations to try to recenter this party. Yeah, I, I, I think you're talking about Jean Charest. Jean Charest, I, he's like 90 or five. He's he's old, dude. Like, I'm just on. gonna predict now that this is gonna go over about as well as the Never Trump movement. I agree with with Adam's analysis. The the split off right wing party in Canada is an explicitly fascist party, as far as I can tell. Yeah, the and PPC the, is explicitly fascist. The right-wing party in Canada has responded by saying, shit, we got to get more fascists too. Yep. And it's very clear that that's what their base wants. So yep. this milquetoast centrist guy who, who <clears throat> honestly is, for all intents and purposes, he's like a fucking Romney Republican, right? Yeah. And he's going to do about as well as Romney Republicans did against Trump. I'm just going to go ahead and predict that now. Sheree's hey, a really good speaker. Right. He's really, he's, he's, I think he would be better on his feet than someone like Mitt Romney. He's not as stiff. He's not as, he doesn't if have I the friggin' underwear. If up I his know ass. anything, it won't matter. That no, he's it won't a matter. Great speaker. No, it won't. He's going to get, he's going to get completely fucking destroyed. All right. So unfortunately, I think we'll only have so much time for Canadian politics, but I think we very clearly pointed out that this, this astroturf protest has fascist reactionary origins and serves the purposes of capital and has nothing to do with the labor class movement. So right. all of that brings us to what I think is probably the most glaring fascist attack on civil rights and localized democracy that we're observing in our portion of the pig empire right now. The passing of laws that are ultimately designed to criminalize ideas, political positions, and even identities fascists don't like. And I think nowhere can we find a more obvious example of the interconnection between an attack on our democratically protected rights and the progression of the fascist project than the monstrous anti-trans law passed recently in Texas. So Walker, why don't you fill us in on some of the wretched details here? Yeah, I think what you need to know before I, I really get into the most recent events is in October, Greg Abbott signed a bill that would ban transgender students from playing on sports teams. That's part of the backstory. The other part is an abortion bill that he signed that now so many other bills are being modeled after, like in Florida with the Don't Say Gay bill, where citizens can sue in order to stomp out rights normally protected by other laws. There's also the Stop Woke bill attacking things like 
CRT and education. Um, this environment needs to be considered when you're talking about Greg Abbott ordering the state's agencies to investigate gender affirming care for transgender children. Uh, the quote in a letter to the agency is, I hereby direct the Department of Family and Protective Services to conduct a prompt and thorough investigation of any reported instances of these abusive procedures in the state of Texas. He, when he says abuse, he is referring to uh, the Texas Attorney General classifying gender-affirming care as abuse and outright illegal. So he's right. piggybacking off of this. Right. But this is bullshit. This is not about stopping child abuse. This is about inflicting violence. This is just like in October about the grave concerns over athletics. It was bullshit then, and it's bullshit now. And with respect to um, making it illegal. So the, the other part I need to mention is Greg Abbott is calling on licensed professionals and members of the general public, end quote, to report the parents of transgender minors to state authorities if it appears the minors are receiving gender-affirming medical care. Yeah. So any teachers who refuse or fail to report are subject to criminal penalties. And there are a lot of liberals right now that would listen to this that believe in the rule of law and say, oh, that would never happen. I trust the system. But keep in mind, it only takes one fascist to call the state, and all the while the Supreme Court will do nothing to stop it. We've already seen that happen so far with the current state of the Supreme Court. And to wrap it up, several states are passing similar bills, either on sports, like Iowa or Indiana, or on gender-affirming health care like Alabama and Arizona. There are a lot of moves being, being made right now, simultaneously. I just want to be clear, okay? When Walker says gender-affirming care, the way this wedge issue is being split in the media is that the reactionaries are talking about um, hormones and much further, they're focusing on surgical alterations of children. But the reality is this is not actually what's happening. Gender-affirming care can be as simple as your teacher agreeing to use your preferred pronouns in class. So we are now hitting a point where you are criminalizing treating transgendered people under the age of 18 as people as having some idea of who they are. And I want to be clear that, that I've recently just read a story on the internet about this being retroactive. A woman who was like, okay, you know, I just need to wait till my child is 18 and I no longer have to worry about this. The child's 18th birthday came and the, the state was there the very next day. So they're retroactively going after the families of not even minors with this law. So it needs to be really understood here that that this definition of gender affirming care that is now child abuse, according to this Texas law, is extremely vague and by and large is open to interpretation and is being interpreted as anything you do to support 
young people who identify as trans um, in their own identity. You know, sim something simply as referring to them by their preferred name and pronouns in class is gender affirming care. Yeah, I, I hate to be that person, but I am going to be that person because knowledge of history requires that at this point in the conversation, if you do not say these words, um, then the angel of anarchy comes out of the sky and shoots you in the face. Um, this is Godwin, um, let's just say Godwin has suspended God Godwin's law when Trump got elected, uh, because this is quite literally to the letter what Hitler and the Nazis did. And in right. fact, I have here a quote from a wonderful article, and it's literally a small little paragraph that I, and I won't have to say anything else. Uh, this happened on May the 6th, 1933, which is incidentally just about exactly four months after Hitler was proclaimed chancellor and given power to do this, Nazi demonstrators raided the libraries of the Institute for Sexual Wissenschaft, which is my terrible German, which uh, roughly translates as the Institute of Sexology. The Institute was a privately operated, no government money, uh, research space for studies of all different aspects without, um, without any, any, any hatred of, of all different natural aspects of human sexuality. Uh, during this raid, uh, 20,000 books were piled into the streets and burned by the Nazi youth. Right, the, the first, very book first target, the very first book burning, was trans people and other non-cis, non-hat human beings. Right, that was right. that Teen Vogue article I think you're referring to. Yeah, fantastic mm -hmm. article. And I guess before I kind of finish this Hitler point, let me kind of put... Uh, I guess really as fine a point on it as I possibly can. I want to make sure that this is as clear as we can possibly make it. What they, what, what is happening here is the exact same thing that happened in Germany, and it is the exact same thing that has happened at the beginning of every single genocide that has ever happened, and that is that the, the fascists have selected a minority or other chosen group of people to deperson, to make all of us believe, or try to make all, all all of us believe that they're literally not people, and so thus not worth your your empathy or your time. Which is always the first step of genocide. Always, yeah, it's the first thing that happens every because your 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 population isn't going to naturally eat itself. They need to be given an enemy to eat from inside before they can be riled up. Most of them. And as we mm -hmm. just mentioned, right, folks, like, you, you know, you may disagree with that position that criminalizing an identity depersons them. But not only is that historically accurate, once again, take a look at the United States. Slavery is legal if you've been convicted of a crime. That's this literally what the 13th Amendment says, essentially. Yep. 100%. So depersoning people by criminalizing their identity is, in fact, a reliable step towards genocide. So to drill back into the central issue, this Ken Paxton, the attorney general for Texas, like at a prompting from a state representative issued 
a new interpretation of state law that was as broad as it possibly could be that said, you know, certain types of medical care for transgender children are abuse, which is, you know, contrary to any medical standard issued by, for instance, the Mayo Clinic, where a lot of gender-affirming therapies originate. And in doing so, he's, you know, embedding so much more meaning onto the simple phrase child abuse, which, in this, you know, elicits such a visceral reaction from anybody who, you know, has been a child, which is 100% of the people in this room and may probably on the greater earth. But now, like, maybe we didn't talk about this before, but like the family services and the teachers, those mandated reporters, which I'm pretty sure is use universal across the states, have that legal obligation to report like any undue influence, like criminalizing identity at a very basic level, like as fascists do. But children are unfortunately a political block without any political power. It's very easy to say you're doing things for them. And then once it's introduced into, you know, society, like the example that we just had, even though it may be targeted underage, the next thing is adults and criminalizing whole identities and groups of people. Right. So, I mean, it, it sounds to me like Pac, uh, Paxson here is just basically doing that. He admitted meme. Right. Like we're at the point where you're where you're defining gender affirming care as child abuse. You are defining transgendered identities as criminal. You know that, that the, he may not be filling in all the gaps, but again, yeah. he's basically directly admitting that that's the goal behind this. And like this has much further reachings than just the United States, because even though we're really like, you know, what, what Charles just said, you're talking about every teacher, every therapist, every doctor can actually be arrested, criminalized, fined, sued, uh, fired. For their not, license. Yeah. Right. For not agreeing to participate in marginalizing, brutalizing, criminalizing an entire identity. And I don't think it gets any much more of a textbook definition of fascism. And I'm gonna be honest with you, other people outside of the United States are starting to notice this anti-trans, anti-LGBTQ issue that has the ability to wedge directly into the fascist project is being picked up all over the world. It's motivating reactionary governments like Modi's government in India, Orban in Hungary. You hear this out of political candidates um, on the right in Brazil and Latin America. They're, right now, fascists are arguing that Vladimir Putin is the good guy in an imperialist invasion because our, we have the they-them woke army. This anti-wokeism, this fascism is when gay people really primitive Nazi kind of political construction, as ridiculous as it may seem to anybody who has a brain, is actually doing fucking numbers the world over. And it's getting reactionary, objectively fascist governments elected far beyond places like Florida, Texas, and other red states in, the, uh, in America. Right. And you see, like, again they pull their tools out of the toolbox and you get people with like national personality, like Candace Owens spewing what would otherwise seem like insane shit. Like the, she's 
been a bigot for basically as long as she's been public. And then what was it like two or three weeks ago? She was like, we're, we're going to annex Canada to get all of their natural resources. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she, she pretended it was something about opposing uh, Trudeau's fascism because of the emergency act. But yeah, yeah you, you got to yeah. rescue us. We need to rescue you know, Trudeau. It's like the people behind those tools. That's a useful thing for them to have said, and even though they don't want to be the one to say it. All right, I gotta oh. ask. Uh, I saw that tweet. I at least saw a screenshot of it, and she said Justin Trudeau Castro. What does that mean exactly? <laughs> well, we better let Adam take this one. <laughs> okay, so, um. Uh, this the the story. This one starts with Trudeau's father. Uh, I don't know if you Americans re- re- remember any of the Pierre Elliott Trudeau stuff. Uh, I didn't know who he was before this evening. Yeah, he he's kind of he's a real character, which means that he's either loved or hated up here in Canada. There's almost no middle ground. Um, and uh, one of the things that he did was he was one of the first Canadian prime ministers to maintain, to establish and maintain close connections with Fidel. So he went down to Cuba on a number of occasions. Um, that's the first point. The second point is that um, Justin's mother, Trudeau's wife at the time, I know it was the 60s, and she enjoyed herself in the 60s. All right, well, so, we're not here to judge. The joke, to judge. the joke was that, and this is completely proven false, but the joke was that one of the times when she went down to Cuba, her and Fidel bombed chicka wow wow, and literally out comes baby Justin. And to be clear, I think Adam is minimizing this a little bit. I was just going to say, this is, a real, this, is, this is a real thing that these, some of these fascist truckers honestly believe is a real thing. Right. I mean, like, I would say it, it's a popular rumor amongst yes. the entire Canadian far right, all of these neo-Nazi groups we've talked about. This is like a real organizing point. Yeah. And... And as ridiculous as that sounds to us, because Trudeau vaguely looks like Castro. Like I've seen two pictures of them side by side. I don't really see it. It, It's so vague. I think what, what is really important to kind of lead back into what Charles is saying, and maybe he can, he can help us close this out. But what we keep seeing over and over and over here is people weaponizing the anger, the reaction, the conspiracy theories for the purposes of reactionary political power and capital. And like, I think when, you know, um, Charles is talking about Candace Owens, it's kind of what he's getting at, right? Right. I mean, she's just an agent provocateur, a useful tool in somebody else's wise words. Right. Who's benefiting? It's like, the people who are paying her to say that crazy shit. And why? Well, when the system's all filled up and legalistic and there's virtually no chance that things can move, you do commerce by other means, like fucking do shady fucking astroturf psyops to create wedge issues to make fucking workers fight each other to lower their fucking labor costs. Yeah, this sounds like the, the wedge issue to unite them all. And I think that's really what our all, all of our show is about, right? 
these things may seem entirely separate. They may seem even like crazy, dumb people getting out of control. But all you have to do is pick up the curtain a very little bit, and it's extremely easy to see the ideological motivations, the reactionary power, and specifically the capitalist greed behind all of these things. And it kind of works like a washing machine, right? Somebody like Candace Owens or Tucker Carlson says a ridiculous fascist conspiracy theory in the media. And then that sentiment is drummed up by all these crazy, angry people amplifying that message. Whereas, right, even the people against it. Right, whereas the politicians and the CEOs that are taking advantage of these messages and the, the rich fascists that are disseminating these messages, they stand back and say, well... I'm not responsible for what an entertainer like Tucker Carlson says, but they're also pushing that sentiment because that sentiment has a direct financial benefit for them, a direct benefit in terms of their influence, power, prestige, and ability to extract more and more wealth from people who are more and more oppressed. And obviously, I think I don't want to spend too much time on the whole Nazi thing. But I think this is what Niemöller was getting at when he wrote the poem that begins with first they came for the communists, right? This is fascism as a process unfolding out right before us. And if you're going to understand that process, you have to understand that what you're seeing on TV is never what the fascists tell you it is. And that the purpose has as much to do with capital and the extraction of wealth as it does to do with promoting reactionary hate-fueled ideology. If all you understand about fascism is the hate, it's very easy for you to be tricked by charlatans like Tucker Carlson or, for that matter, Glenn Greenwald that into believing what you're seeing here is a class war action by workers. When I think... We've demonstrated conclusively throughout this episode that that is not the case. Does anybody else got anything they want to add? I think that says it as succinctly as we possibly can. All right, trans folks. lives matter. Yeah, no, trans lives do matter. Uh, and in fact, if you don't care about trans lives now, you're going to have to be telling people that your life matters pretty soon if history is any indication. Yeah, this time around, it's 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 all. I mean, it's always communist first, right? Mm -hmm. uh, this time around, the second row is 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 trans people. Well, and keep in mind, fascists decide who's a communist, right? Like they were literally out to get communists who were running the Black Lives Matter protests. Uh, Black Lives Matter is not a communist organization, right? Every no, I, I don't think you need me to tell you that. But again, it all comes it all comes down to don't trust fascists. When they tell you what they're doing, they're always doing the same thing, installing fascism. Yeah. Same All with right, their well, framing. Yeah, no, absolutely. Don't accept their framing. I agree 100% with what Adam just said. And I guess with that, we're pretty much wrapped up. We'll see you guys in a couple of weeks with another episode of Kropotkin's Barbershop. Want to say goodnight, folks? Goodnight, good night, folks. Ciao. Teaches you to be